You're listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. Join us for an insightful conversation with Emily Ward, founder and CEO of AlcaCruise, as we explore her remarkable journey from VP and Chief Technology Counsel at eBay to the helm of her own tech startup. We cover lessons learned from eBay's expansion into China and global markets, the importance of intellectual property for startups, Emily's experience on eBay's mergers and acquisition teams and the importance of of a strong legal team, transition into tech entrepreneurship, and the problems that Alka Cruz solves. This and much more on this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast. Now let's begin. Enjoy. Welcome to the Silicon Valley Podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. First, before we begin this week's episode, I want to thank Sam Wall, who made the introduction that allowed this week's episode to take place. Yay, Sam. Sam, and you've been on the show multiple times. All our listeners look back to his episodes. He's given some amazing advice. And with that, Emily, welcome to the Silicon Valley Podcast. Thank you, Sean. I'm really delighted to be here. So thank you. So for our audience out there, Emily's actually listened to some of our past episodes. (laughs) And they're good. So with that, Emily, can you tell our audience a little bit about your history, a little bit about your career up until this point? Sure. So really nice to meet everyone. Thanks for joining. So right now I'm the CEO of Competes TV, which I'll be talking about in a prior life. I was a lawyer for many years. can go on with the bad lawyer jokes, but for many years working at law firms and then working at um, PayPal and eBay as a legal executive. Had a long history in Silicon Valley, actually also in New York City and otherwise. So, Okay, New York versus Silicon Valley. Any favorites there? Ah, well, good question. I went to New York right after I graduated from law school. So picture, it was a great time to me in New York. It was fun. I'm dating myself with this before 9-11, but moving out to Silicon Valley has been tremendous. And I have to say the weather's awesome. I met my husband here. I'd say it's pretty good. Okay. Now tell us about your early career, or maybe not so much going all the way back to the beginning, but you know, between... 2002 and 2015, you were at eBay. Right. Now, what were you doing there? And kind of tell us, because that was, eBay was the company at that time. It was the company at that time. And I, I sort of smile because I came on board eBay as their very first patent litigator and patent attorney. And it was an amazing time to go from being in an outside law firm to eBay because eBay was so hot then. And it still is a tremendous company. But there was a period of time where it was really unclear who were going to be the true hottest internet darlings. And eBay was right up there. And I had the great fortune of joining eBay about the month that we acquired PayPal. So while I didn't get to meet all of the PayPal mafia, I get to meet a few people. They were all tremendous. It was fun being part of the onboarding team for PayPal and seeing the transition of PayPal and eBay from what it was back in 2002 to what it eventually became. So you have to say a couple stories now that we found out (laughs) you've met the PayPal mafia. Oh gosh, I don't know if I know of any good stories. I will say that I'm so (laughs) sorry I'm thinking over some things. I just have tremendous stories that I'm pretty sure are covered by a confidentiality (laughs) agreement. Really apologize, Sean. I should have thought of this ahead of time for you. But (laughs) the best stuff I have to say is covered by a confidentiality agreement that I was an attorney. Still am a bit. I would just sort of say I was able 
to go through and watch the evolution of eBay onboarding PayPal all the way up through and be part of the teams to acquire Skype, sell off Skype, right, to PayPal. So at first we were better together was the mantra that we were apparently were better apart. Any lessons in that whole situation? And you opened up the, the can of worms. I'm, I'm sorry, so that, sorry I did. <laughs> that, that you can share with the entrepreneurs, the investors out there of MMA going, mergers, acquisition going good, going bad, or just, hey, these are some lessons that I learned or things I saw that might help others out there. Yeah, I think I would say a generally accepted t- statistic is that 90% of acquisitions tend to fail because. There are certain metrics that you use to bring on board a company that those metrics aren't always met when the company is fully onboarded. I would say that eBay, PayPal both have a very good history of being kind is probably the best word in the acquisition. They really try to treat the entrepreneurs well. They really try to onboard and really let people come in and acclimate into the larger company. I think important things are always, if I put on my big corporate hat again, communication and making sure that communication is done well across silos. When you have a large company, of course, that's always challenging. Startups, not so challenging. It's a different world. But within large companies, just making sure that the expertise and the best parts of an acquisition are well known throughout the company is, I think, always an important goal. That's interesting. The being friendly towards the entrepreneur. Did that help, or the entrepreneurs, the big company, how valuable do you think that was in terms of culture, maybe mm-hmm. past acquisition of, hey, they're really accepting us, or really a, a warm feel and maybe a quicker transition because mm-hmm. of that? I, I think you hit the nail on the head. Trust is really important. It's important with a large company, every bit as well as a small company. So when people feel trusted, acknowledged, that their value is really being taken into careful thought and consideration, they'll expose so much more of their strengths and assets. I think that's really an important part. When, and I would say this is not the eBay PayPal culture, but when there are entities that are small companies that are taken in by larger companies where that trust isn't there and it's sort of viewed as, I was a small company and now I'm being boarded by the mothership. <laughs> So everybody try to last as long as you can until you get your golden parachute and leave. It's just a very different environment. And I don't think, honestly, it does well for corporate goals. And for at the end of the day, if I lift up, we're a team, right? And even though we're a team across many different silos and business units, we only do well as a team if we all work well together. It's the philosophy that works every bit as well for a large company as it does for an NBA team, right? On an NBA team, you can certainly see when there are people that have a, I'm a star, so treat me as a star, <laughs> right? And I matter more than the team matters. I don't think the team does that well. No, they never, they, they make it to the playoffs. They never win the championship. Exactly, exactly. And maybe certain names, and those names have a lot of cachet around them. But as a team, you're right. You're not going to be winning the championship. You're not going to be doing everything you could and should be doing. And that's the same way with corporate M&A. So going to your time at eBay, 2002, you're expanding, you're growing into new markets. Mm-hmm. And, and at this time, remember for our audience, think back, eBay, when they were expanding, they, they didn't have billions of dollars. It was fast growth. Yeah. What was it like at that time entering new markets and kind of 
well, did people just look at a map and go, okay, that's the next territory we're expanding? Or what was the thought process behind the, the rapid expansion? And I, I'm really curious about going into Asia. Mm-hmm. But let's just first start with the rapid expansion. Back in 2002, and I just sort of remember it being something where, and I was 21 years ago, it was like drinking from a fire hose. That, that's when we just completely laugh about it, right? Because the company was smaller. The teams were smaller. You were expected to be very agile. So you had to field any number of questions. And nobody was just sort of saying, well, I just do this job. I don't do another job, right? So everybody was doing everything. We knew that speed mattered. So you were trying to actually make your best guess, your best decision based on the information that you had on hand and then move forward. You didn't really have time to second guess yourself. You didn't have time for mountains of research. You just had to keep moving forward. I think expansion for any company, if I draw lessons back from what I watched at eBay and PayPal, because we were my team, we were responsible for everything across the different companies because we were a central corporate function. Time matters. I, I feel it that way with a startup as well. You will never be perfect and you will lose more by trying to be cautious and always seek the A plus answer than you will moving ahead, if not aggressively, at least super rapidly, right? To be because otherwise you will just lose ground because the world is always changing around you and you either keep up with it and steam ahead, or if you fall behind, you're just you're gonna be toast. Okay, now thinking about moving rapidly, a lot of companies, hey, we're not going to go out until our patents are issued or we get our IP set up. What are your thoughts with early stage, early, early stage companies and their IP strategy, getting everything patented versus, hey, let's go out and make sales and we'll worry about this later? So you're hitting a sweet spot for me because now in my life now, I'm both a CEO and then in a former life at PayPal and eBay, headed up different areas of the legal departments, as well as my startup, which was actually being an IP attorney first, right? As my first job, I'd say IP really matters. It matters that you own your technology. It matters that you protect your technology. I will never say IP doesn't matter, but time to market and speed really matters. So I think there's a way to be smart and to do both. First, find yourself a great patent prosecution shop. We have somebody that we really like over at Schwegman which we've used for many years. And we've worked with some other really fine shops as well. But find yourself somebody good that can move very quickly with you. You could always get something like you put a provisional on file utilities quickly in a matter of a few weeks. Sometimes we've even done sometimes the uh, provisionals within a few days to get it in. Every You learn all the tricks of the trade. Everything from you file in Hawaii, you get an extra five hours, <laughs> right? To be able to get something on and you can still make it ahead of the developers conference. <laughs> So there are ways to do it where you could protect your IP. But the important thing I think are severalfold. One, you have to really believe in both the power of IP and the power of your technology and that it's valuable and you're willing to put resources behind it. Two, you actually must have a great team assembled because when you have to move fast, your team has to be there and they have to be able to run with you. If you're at that point trying to assemble your team, you're really already too late. So speaking of... of team movement and going back to the acquisitions. How important, well, we've already had lawyers on the show before, but I'd like your perspective of lawyers in the mergers acquisition process, having that those good lawyers in the deal. How important is that? Oh, 
I guess if you want to have your deal on good terms, you would hopefully get yourself a really good team. The other thing I sort of mentioned too, and you're going to be very familiar with this, but because of SEC reporting requirements, sometimes the larger the acquisition the faster you have to move, right? The times where I was fortunately able to fly the corporate jet with the members of the team was because of very large acquisitions, because we had to work on the plane, we had to move instantly, we had to get everything done within mm, two weekends a week or something like that, because you have to be able to, if you will, do everything you can for due diligence, really kick the tires, make sure that everything people say they own and also make all your other uh, reporting requirements it has to be done really fast. Smaller acquisitions, actually, weirdly enough, you have more time. You have the ability to be able to move multiple M&A projects simultaneously because you are not within certain reporting requirement thresholds. Which do you prefer? Well, I would say there are times when for some of the smaller projects, they've been near and dear to my heart because I got to meet the entrepreneurs and spend time with them as the head of IP and legal and tech for large segments of the you know uh, company. I got a chance to meet firsthand a lot of the entrepreneurs since I really enjoyed that. But I would say my favorite ones were the ones where they were the big acquisitions because as a team, you're working 24-7, right? And you're really working with a small core team and a very large extended team. And you feel that sense of teamwork. You feel that sense of camaraderie, a sense of like, let's just make it happen. We've got a lot to do. And you're kind of working with your core team very quickly. And it's tough because you don't get to see your family much during that time, but it's super enjoyable. And I I think that's a little bit of even what startup life reminds me of. So past the time at eBay, Moving on, you've been on a bunch of boards. One of the comments that's brought up a lot in Silicon Valley and globally is just diversity of boards. What are your thoughts there? What should boards be looking for? It's a great question. I will say, I think that diversity, it's truly important if you want your leadership representation to be akin to your customer representation, right? If your customer representation is across all ages and demographics, you kind of owe it to yourself to have people at the top end that are able to, on the board, influence your company leadership team in a way that benefits the demographics of your customer constituency, right? How odd would it be, right, for you to have a board that, just put it this way, is all, and again, nothing against it, but white men from 55 to 65 where your customer constituency is in the 18 to 27-year-old bracket with 61% female. Is that really going to make sense? I, I kind of don't think so. So I think diversity actually really matters. And I think also with diversity, I'll just sort of say this, comes courage and the ability to have an issue contrarian thoughts. I say this because I'm a little bit influenced by my husband. Victor, who has, in our 22 years of marriage, he's an outstanding thinker because a lot of people tend to think along a certain way. He'll look at it and think, why is it this way? Why can't it be this way? And I think if you look at the people that are really the pioneers, the people that we really admire today in the world that have done something great, a lot of the times they're the people who think everybody else thinks this way. Why can't we think something else? And I, I think that's important for, web, for anything. 
for leadership, for board representation, even in your own life, to actually be able to question the status quo. What do you think the difference is between a good board and a great board? I think a good board is something where there's trust, people have good relationships, and they know how to work on each, with each other, and they know what each other's respective strengths are. Sort of like board director A will tend to pipe up on certain issues, board director B will defer to board director A because he knows or she knows board director A has more expect expertise, and relationally they're comfortable with each other. I think a great board is one where there's so much trust and so much of a mission mind of this may threaten a relationship, but this is so much better for the company. I'm willing to step out and say something. That's a great board, right? It's that level of trust that is so strong that it's not a, I'm going to say this because I'm going to be liked and I know directors A, B, and C will agree with me, but I'm going to say X because it may threaten a few of the relationships, but yet I think it is a better thing for the company. And I know directors A, B, and C will trust me enough and understand and will actually have some conflict. We'll actually have some good conversation, but we'll arrive at a unified front where we'll make a decision and we'll move forward with it. But we will have actually vetted out the things that we should talk about as a board. Do you think everyone on the board has to have that mindset for it to be a great board or a majority or just maybe one person's enough? Such a good question. I don't think one person's enough. I think if it's one person, that person, I hate to say it, is always going to be seen as the contrarian. That's even why when we sort of talk about diversity and I'm on different things like direct women I've been part of in the past, which helps women to get onto more boards. Obviously, there's a thing in California to have more women promoted as directors and board directors. I think what I hear a lot is the magic number is three. So if you have just one woman on board, a good size board, right? Is this a seven person board? Let's say a seven to 10 person board. Okay. If you have one woman on board, what I've, and again, this applies in general, but I'm using a specific example. If you have one woman on board, it's a little bit hard sometimes for there to be enough freedom for that person to actually feel like what I say can really matter and I can pull other people along. And again, this is can be irrespective of gender, really. But what I've heard is the magic number is three, where if you have at least three women directors, then you actually get some real movement and action because people, and again, I say this in kind of a crass oversimplification, are not afraid to state their thoughts and opinions, even if they know it's going to really tick off some of the other people on the board. I think the best are if you have a majority of people who like each other and trusting each other enough that they can raise a contrarian thought, but also too, they can talk about it, discuss it and go out and have a beer later (laughs) and still talk to each other and be, Hey, we had a great discussion and no hard feelings. We we can still get along great together. There's a couple of things you mentioned there that I'd like to double click on, go a little deeper. One, women on boards, also women founders of companies. You speak on, on that topic quite a bit. Yes. What advice, what wisdom, or what do you like to talk about around that topic? So that's a really interesting question. I'll give you a little bit of background. I'll answer your question if you don't mind. So when I was back at eBay and PayPal, 
in my position, which eventually got elevated into a better position <laughs> at the company. I, I, what was I that final position for the audience? It, well, it became a vice president in legal that headed up different groups, kind of legal technology, IP licensing, litigation. So I was kind of busy. <laughs> and we also did M&A uh, due diligence and all the licensing that goes along with that. Yeah, we were busy. <laughs> And I grew into that position, right? I started off as the company's first patent attorney. Something. You're basically the whole legal team right there. <laughs> yeah. so. it, was, it was a decent, it was a decent, it was a great group. I will say this. I was, one thing I really can say, and shout out if any of my former colleagues are watching, I was really surrounded by a lot of great people. I think our general counsel, Mike Jacobson, called it lightning in a bottle, where you are so fortunate, right? To be able to work with people that you think, wow, will I ever work with people this great again? which I've been very fortunate in my career to have been able to do that multiple times, including our current startup competes. But at some point, fairly early on, I started having lunches with a number of what I would call truly peer friends. So we knew some people really well and some people we became friends, but we were basically seven women that all had similar positions within the large tech companies in Silicon Valley at that time. So I want to say us... Google, Cisco, Apple, we just had lunches together. And then we became friends mainly because we were trying to understand how better, how best to do our position, right? And then we turned that into a realization where we can take these friendships and do something great for other women because we struggled. And we understand what it feels like to struggle to go from the junior levels to the more senior levels. And we can help other women in that capacity. So we formed an organization called CHIPS. If you look at it now, it's chipsnetwork.org. And CHIPS stands for Chief Women in IP. Also, we jokingly refer to it as Chicks in IP. <laughs> so now it's advancing women in tech, law, and policy. It's grown well beyond what we started off. So we started doing these lunch meetings. We'd invite judges, famous litigators. We'd hold training sessions. We ended up doing a global IP summits in or global chip summits, excuse me, in DC, where we had an amazing number of speakers, honorees. And now I think chips is, I want to say over 4,000, 5,000 women worldwide. That's wow. pretty good. Who runs it now? Or how? We have a board. So I was part of the board for many years. And then as I joined our startup, had to <laughs> resign, sadly, because it was very hard to both be on the board, run an Oda startup and be a mom of a young child. So one of them had to go and it wasn't going to be being a mom. <laughs> oh, I thought you said you put everything in a hat. And <laughs> kind of a Rochambeau or <laughs> draw lots, right? <laughs> Thankfully, the child was staying, <laughs> not to mention the four rescue dogs. Yeah. I'm sorry, your original question. I apologize. Oh. There was you like to that, speak on and advice you give. Yes, advice that we give. So one of the things I'll just sort of say that was really an aha for us is that there was a study done in Stanford many years ago. It's a pretty famous study where I want to say a entrepreneur, I want to say Heidi Closen, they did a study amongst Stanford graduate students and they had her resume as a woman and they had exact same resume as a man. Just mask the personal details. And what they found, which was very interesting, is that people uniformly, and this is among Stanford graduate students, so this is a pretty elite, well-educated group. 
responded better and demonstrated higher levels of confidence when the entrepreneur was a male. So it's your name. <laughs> yes, and if I changed my XY chromosomes, and all oh. my husband would probably be <laughs> horrified, but yes. But the thing was, people, like, it's interesting. They had a higher degree of confidence in male agentic characteristics. So the type of characteristics that sometimes like a man will demonstrate an assertiveness, an aggressiveness, people thought, well, I could really buy behind that. But a woman who demonstrates those characteristics was respected, but not liked so much. And a woman who demonstrates characteristics of empathy, compassion, and kindness, I'm not, I'm not saying males can't have it as well, but demonstrates characteristics of empathy, compassion, and kindness was liked, but not respected as much, which is really interesting. It's a stereotype that persists in people's minds as an implicit bias. And so part of what we try to do is both counteract it, right, by providing um, awareness, incentives. We even had, you know, people come in and do, you know, training for us at, you know, the large major tech companies to make managers aware of the bias, but also to to help women support each other and men support women so that when you're displaying say, for example, kindness or empathy, you can still support and respect a person, even though they're not as aggressive and hard driving in the way that they come across. For myself, I'll just sort of say this. I've learned over the years that I am my most powerful when I am true to myself. Even though I'm aware of the problems of implicit bias, I feel like I would lose Emily if I stopped having compassion or empathy. I would not like the person I'd become. So I think even though I know the detriment it may be to me from an implicit bias standpoint, I still have to be what I am. So would that be the recommendation for to get more females as CEOs in the Valley? Or what would yeah. the advice be to get more that female number? CEOs? The interesting thing, I think, is that you have to believe you can do it. When I was asked, this startup had already begun when I was asked to be the CEO by the co-founders and by my husband. The co-founders really liked my husband. They really liked him. They were friends. So they were sort of, and they want to be careful on how I say this. We might clip some of this. <laughs> but the co-founders and my husband were friends. They actually met at church. They met, they became friends. They really wanted to move away from their CEO. So they reached out to Victor first. And this is one of the things you can really do is marry a really great man. So Victor said, see you looking at your wife. <laughs> she already checked that box off. That was... You're very fortunate. Both of you, I would say, are fortunate. We'll edit so, that part out. We'll just keep the... Sure, you would say you really <laughs> lucked out. But he said, I'd be a fantastic CEO for you, but you know, my wife would be even better. So he introduced me to the co-founders. We had lunches and dinners and due diligence and a lot of talking and discussing. Well, and I kicked the tires every bit as hard as I do for did for my M&A and PayPal projects, because this is after I had left the company, right? And was looking at just doing a lot of board work and other things. But I thought, one, they have a fantastic technology of product and a really cool team. And two, the funny thing is, I'll say this, it's embarrassing. I told them, I'm not sure if I could do this because I've never been a CEO before. And I felt my husband kicking me under the table. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> because all the guys think you could do it. I was surrounded by a table of guys. And they all looked at me and said, 
course you can do it. What are you even thinking? And because, and I kicked myself a little bit for it, because they said they thought I could do it and they believed in it, then I believed I could do it. But the advice I would give to other women CEOs is be better than me. Think that you can do it. Believe you can do it. Don't need somebody, you don't need somebody else to tell you can do it. Question right there. I, I am curious. I mean, your background is law. I know. Not the business aspect. What was it that either one was giving you hesitation to move forward or giving you confidence to move forward? Hmm. Part of it, I will say, is, well, my hesitation was I had never done it before. I just had never been a CEO of a startup before. I had been a legal executive for many years and a lawyer for many years. And I was very confident, right, in my legal and, you know, litigation and negotiation abilities. I think that also helped me, though, to have some confidence because part of being a good lawyer, I'm not even talking about an excellent lawyer, but a good lawyer is you have to be an excellent business person. If you're not an excellent business person, then I'm sorry, you're giving your clients crap advice. You, <laughs> But it's true. I, I think that's spot on, especially with the investment banker here. He's made many comments about lawyers killing deals on this show. Yeah. So. I just, I really feel like if you can't see the forest for the trees, you should hang up your shingle. You're, you're just not doing what you should do for your clients if you're not thinking about them as a whole person, a whole company, a whole entity. I'll give you an example. Like how good would a doctor be if they came in, a person came in and the person was suffering from a head wound chest wound and a leg wound and the person said, oh, there's something wrong with your foot. Really? Is that really the way you're a good doctor? But but this is the way a <laughs> lawyer should be as well. System, <laughs> exactly. So. <laughs> exactly. So you really have to be able to look at the whole thing. And you and I think one important thing I learned as a lawyer, and it did I had to learn it. It was not natural to me, but you have to learn how to think about what is the best thing for my client and what is the best thing for the end goal that my client is trying to reach. Not the best thing for my case my project, my win. Come on. It's so much bigger than you. And I think if you have lawyers, but then translate into business people, translate into leaders that think that way, then you're going to have, be honest, not only a great company, but a team that is behind you because they'll know that you are behind them and behind the mission. You're not there for yourself. And it's a very big difference. Okay. So now that we've established you're the perfect person for your oh company. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Please, I'm not. I'm still learning. I'm still learning. <laughs> I like how you suddenly positioned it that way. Tell us about your company. <laughs> oh, yes. Thank you. So I'd love to talk about our company. So Competes TV. So we have a competition platform. It's a video platform that is going to launch very soon on iOS. So Competes TV is an online video competition platform. It's going to be launching soon on iOS. So picture things where you want to watch events sort of side by side, whether it's a find your best recipe for fried rice and you have 10 people cooking and everybody does their fried rice recipe and then real time people can vote and vote on what their favorite is. But we can elevate even above that. So it can be entertainment, dance, singing. It can be trending topic. Picture recently we had the GOP debate. So what if we took all of those topics, right, and gave everybody a platform and they had five minutes to say what their position is on clean energy, on the environment, on taxes, on the war in the Ukraine. And we had a time for real-time voting and to be able to establish the voting results 
per position. So there's really nothing else out there like it that is able to give real-time voting sentiment, real-time on a variety of topics or videos across a wide variety of topics. So how is your experience with working, I mean, yes, eBay in that early stage startup, but then massive budgets. How's your experience with these working with companies with so much money for so long? How does that roll over into now a scrappy startup? It's very different. I will say this, it's very different. We've always been budget conscious and cost conscious, whether at large companies or small companies, but at small companies, I would sort of say the startups are, you have to make trade-offs. You're always thinking about what we have to trade off to be able to get to our MVP and push the best product that we can out there in the best timing that we can. Well, when do we get to try this out? Is there a Uh, video you could show us? Yes, absolutely. So I will send you a video. Do you want me to send it in as a clip that you insert or do you want me to show it in as this? Why don't I send you a video clip? Because I think that would be the best because people, I'm afraid of the distortion from the camera uh, glare on the iPad, but I could definitely send you one. I I would like to talk a little bit about an example for Compete. So Compete's- Emily, do you have any examples of maybe the competition or, or, you know, things that will happen on Compete's? Absolutely. I certainly can. So even this morning, I looked and there was, if you can see, there is on People Magazine, they did, and it's a great uh, charity, right? They did a Who is the Cutest Shelter Pet? And the winner gets, I want to say, $1,000, a lifetime supply of pedigree, (laughs) right? But there's not a real-time voting. So picture, people are voting on this, but it's very hard to go from an offline where you see something to a click to vote. People don't necessarily do that easily. With ours, we could line up all these dogs, right? Which were big dog lovers. And every shelter then takes in a video of the dog they want to enter into a contest and people do real-time voting on it and there's one winner. But there are very big differences. One is that there's actually like a true democracy. There's a full voting by people and the top dog wins. But then the most important thing is we establish like URL links so that underneath these links, you can click on it and vote and be able to see more of the shelter pets at that shelter. So it's great for being able to translate, if you will, from an online contest into so many other followers for that shelter and get more dogs adopted. That's just one example, right? But picture an example where there are four singers. I'll give you an example. So singers, and this is a small contest, singer A, B, C, and D. Singer A has the smallest following. They only have 500 followers. Singer B has 10,000 followers. Singer C has 10 million followers. Single Singer D has 20 million followers. When the video is posted of the contest, each contestant can send to their fans or followers and say, vote for me at Competes TV. So they're able to send it out to all their following. But what happens with that? In that moment, after they send it out, followers of Singer A, they all see the other contestants. But the big winner are, if you will, all the other followers for Singers A, B, C, and D. Because Singer D, that has 20 million followers, all their followers come and see the contestants for A, B, C, and D, right? So they're Each of the singers are adding following. 
and nobody loses out. It's all additive to what you already have on your existing videos, whether on TikTok, YouTube, or Reddit or anything else. And you can create new videos, but you can also use archival footage and you're adding to your subscribers and followers in ways that is truly addictive <laughs> and using a network effect. Okay. And with that, Emily, it's about time to, to wrap up. Mm -hmm. If anyone wants to find out more information about your company, about yourself, what's the best way to go about doing it? Yeah. yeah. So our website, our marketing website is competes.tv. Sign up for our upcoming iOS app launch. And then I also wanted to encourage you to one of our friends in marketing is he owns a Maui Luau company. So many of their people have been terribly affected by the Maui fires. So they are, we're running a benefit. He's running a benefit. We're aiding. So all proceeds go to victims of the Maui fires. So we'll distribute the link and we really hope people sign up. Fantastic. We'll have all that information in the show notes. And when I'm not the host of the Silicon Valley podcast, I'm an investment banker focused on mergers, acquisition, growth, capital, secondaries. If you want to contact me on LinkedIn, find me. I'm open to have a conversation earlier, the better. And for our audience out there, if you want to find out about our past episodes, current and our future, go to our website, thesiliconvalleypodcast.com. Also check out Emily's website where we will have some of our video footage and uh, yes. vote for us in future competitions. So with that, Emily, I want to thank you for taking the time to be on the show this so week. Much fun. I really enjoyed our time together. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley podcast. To access our resources, visit us at thesiliconvalleypodcast.com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional.